Welcome to the Honest DP podcast. We are the podcast for health professionals and the wider community looking to explore diverse ideas in health, ask some hard questions, and have some honest conversations. My name is Archie. I'm an EP based on Sydney's Northern Beaches. And joining me as always is Allied Health business owner and business mentor, Andrew. How are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> Very well. Very well. Andrew, we have a guest today. His name is Max. He's about to crack a... Um, <laughs> What is what? it? <laughs> what are you cracking, Max? It's a wild flower, uh, Australian wild ale. And Australian it's in a, wild ale. It's a big bottle. It's in like a big wine bottle, but with like a beer bottle cap on top. Mm-hmm. Just have a sniff. How's it sniff? How's it smell? No, I'm alright, you pour it. I'll, I'll smell it from the glass. It smells fragrant. So, where do you get it from? Uh, from. Oh, it's dark. It's dark. <laughs> and most of them are very, very. Unusual, but thank you. Tasty. Unusual but tasty. Yeah, I've actually never tried it myself, so hopefully, uh, oh. I've heard great things. <laughs> have you been to this brewery before? No. Really? I have not. So this is—you've just gone in completely rogue here and, and bought something you've never I've tried. I've gone before. off a lot of what a lot of people have said. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. We'll finish off the whole bottle. So did you buy it from the brewery or from, oh Jesus, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, because they're shut. I was going to go get it from the brewery, but they only open up on Fridays. That's, that was disappointing, but. There you go. All right, well, we'll have a taste. Oh, interesting. Natural. Is it beer? It's beer. It's an ale. It's an ale. It's like an old, old style kind of ale. And I think they use a lot of um, botanics from Australia. Yeah, right. It tastes botanical. It almost tastes like a... Like a barley wine or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's like half wine. Like mm. it's almost white, winey, rosé mm. um, kind of vibe to it. Which I don't mind. Yeah. What? How strong is it? Oh, 6%. Okay. It's not that much at all, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we don't normally have a bottle of that, but that's fine. <laughs> That's good. Well, Max, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and who you are? Sure. So my name is Max Looms and I have just finished my Master of Clinical Psychology at uh, University of Technology, Sydney. Uh, I've been in research for about seven years uh, and the most recent is in, at UNSW doing a lot of work on trauma uh, and also at St. Vincent's doing some work on psychosis and vulnerable communities and around Sydney's um, kind of inner city. So yeah, that's me. Um, I'm also on the executive of the Australasian Society for Traumatic Stress, which is run by NEP, and is, which is also really exciting. Is that right? Yeah. Wait, is that correct? Yeah. So two, the in the exec, there's two or three are EPs, the top positions in EP. And yes, go us, go us. How yeah. about that? And I work for an EP at UNSW, which is very enlightening. And who's that? It's that Simon, Simon Rosenbaum, okay. and he's great at what he does. There you go. And then is it a different EP on the board? Same person. Same person. Oh, it's all Simon. Okay. It right. is all Simon. He's prolific. Yeah, right. Hmm. Okay. And you've recently completed your master's thesis in Correct. clinical psych, is that right? Yep. What was the title of your thesis? Oh, I can't remember it now. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yes, it was, it was pretty much looking at um, trauma within the police and sort of 
identifying and validating sort of what we call a moral injury or trauma in police people who go off um, with a psychological injury. So when you have um, a psychological injury at work, you'll get work cover, you'll go through that whole process. And it was looking at from my head to toe, you know, what worked, what didn't work, whether there was a thing called moral injury. Um, and that was a fascinating kind of experience. What's, what's moral injury? So, you know, trauma can be kind of broken down into a lot of different ways, but the main way that people see it is sort of post-traumatic stress disorder, when you have something that scares you or has such a sort of physiological response that you, pretty much the whole world becomes, you become fearful of the whole world. Uh, moral injury doesn't necessarily have that fear, but it's when you sort of transgress your views or your values, or someone transgresses them as well. So perhaps a good one to give an example of is someone who's in the military and they have to do something that essentially goes against their strong health beliefs. So uh, perhaps someone who's a pacifist and they get conscripted to, to war mm. and then they have to shoot someone and kill them. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily the, the fear or like the war, it's the actual actions that they do. Mm. And that is very not well understood but it can be just as like uh, impactful. So people can end up with um, like a post-traumatic type injury from a moral yeah. injury? Yeah, so most of the time they come hand in hand. So people with PTSD will have a moral injury if it, mm. um, depending on the kind of situation. You can get people who have PTSD alone and you can get moral injury alone. Um, but typically it like depends on the population. So people in, who are in the military will probably have both because they've seen a lot of things which have, you know, transgressed their values as well as seeing things that they've made them fear for their life. Mm. Um, but like in the civilian population, you get people who, you know, have are in a car crash. That would give them PTSD, mm. but it wouldn't necessarily go against their own values. Mm. But then you can also get people who are at work and something really like happens and they've been there for 20 years and all of a sudden they've been sort of, you know, uh, sort of disrespected by someone to the point where they sort of have a mental breakdown and they have to leave. And that would be probably considered a moral injury. Hmm. And so it's very interesting because it doesn't have that sort of immediate fear that a lot of PTSD, like a requirement of the DSM is that you need to have that fear and it doesn't have that, but it can lead to really bad um, factors like such as suicidal ideation, um, depression, uh, a lot of negative self-thoughts, uh, withdrawal, people can become agoraphobic, immense anxiety, there's a lot of self-hatred, a lot of questioning about people's identity. It's, it's, really, it can, it's really impactful, but it's not very well understood. And this is what your thesis was Correct. Went looking through. into how well the system manages these people or these injuries? Yeah, and what causes it mm. and because it's quite a because we, we were working with um uh with different organizations such as the police it's quite confidential about like what until we like publish this paper it won't be so that information won't be given but mm. it's very interesting because it's not well documented in the police because of um, but they are sort of a similar to military population where they have to go to sort of go and experience quite confronting mm. scenes so that's that was very interesting going through thousands of pages of sort of injury management files. One of the great things that I identified was the consistency of EPs 
and how they were so helpful throughout. And most people had an, an exercise physiologist or appointment and it was always a delight reading the kind of progress they made. That's interesting um, that they seem to be so common in um, like more psychological injuries. Mm. Um, so when you're talking about, uh, well, if we come to topic of trauma-informed practice, which is what we want to spend more time on mm. today, um, how would you define what trauma-informed practice is uh, from, and maybe how that works from the perspective of a clinical psychologist mm -hmm. and then how that would differ from someone like a physical therapist or an EP? Sure. So you know, trauma-informed care is providing care to people who may be experiencing any kind of trauma and it's sort of being mindful of the fact they have experienced trauma. So when you sort of experience trauma, there's a lot of changes in your body. There's such things like hypervigilance. You become really hypervigilant to people, to sounds. Um, you also become really wary of people. So mm. some people may represent sort of danger. So if you have perhaps um, someone who's experienced uh, like a sexual assault or something, then maybe a whole entire um, group of people may become then very, like it represent danger to them. Um, there's a lot of sort of avoidance of things. So people with PTSD will avoid sort of any recollection or anything that may represent what they've experienced. Um, and that makes things quite uh, hard for them to engage with something. So take, for example, um, you know, lots of sounds in, a, in, a, in an office may really overwhelm a person. I guess trauma-informed care is being mindful of that and providing care that puts trauma into your mind when you're doing it. Mm. So for all everyone, trauma-informed care is keeping that in mind. For a clinical psych, we sort of have a lot of knowledge about this kind of stuff, but we could still improve for sure. Um, it's about really sometimes stepping into the shoes of people who have experienced trauma. So perhaps understanding those, those different symptoms that people experience and being mindful of how you interact with people. So um, instead of sort of taking the approach being like, okay, what's, what's your problem or what's, what's, you know, what did you do? It's like, what's happened to you and, and what's your story? And um, it's very much oh, taking away from the problem kind of, uh, speaking about the problem as their fault but more what has happened to them mm. and so it kind of can be broken down in different ways but um, I think it's really good to sort of perhaps think of different um, scenarios where a person might come in so perhaps you know do you guys work a lot with people with PTSD or kind of trauma mm -hmm. we do and they might come in under a couple of different schemes. It might be work cover, mm -hmm. um, or it might also be DDA, so yep. veterans. Yep. Um, and then also often um, under NDIS as well, more so in the space of like a psychosocial disability. Yeah. Often. Yeah. So I guess that's a really important kind of space for people. Like you, you guys cater to a lot of sort of um, people who may be experiencing trauma, and I guess. It goes from all the moment that people step into the sort of the um, into rebound, and I guess when I walked in, it was a very welcoming space. 
it didn't sort of have that very harsh clinical sense to it. And I think that's that's a really important aspect to it when people um, sort of come in to get care, they want warmth, they want people to be listening. And that's what I kind of felt when I came in. And that's like the kind of first step. Um, when it comes to sort of specifically with exercise physiologists, it's really important to sort of be knowledgeable of what the different types of trauma. So PTSD is one type, there's moral injury, there's even sort of other forms of, such as like complex PTSD, which is when people experience multiple sort of traumas throughout their life and that causes a lot of more symptoms, a lot more um, sort of uh, impacts on people's lives. There's even things like borderline personality disorder, which is a uh, contentious sort of diagnostic concept, but it really impacts people's relationships. And that's a really big one for allied health because when you work in that space, there's people are very untrusting of, of the population, mm. such as like anyone who's medical, anyone mm. who's allied health, and mm. being really open and understanding that person can then make them trust you and get the care they need. Mm. So, you know, it starts at the front door, but it also comes to the clinician and how they know about trauma as well. Mm. I know it's always a, um, it's quite a contentious subject, especially in, in the EP world, um, when we're working with clients who have um, like this kind of trauma background or a mental health background mm. and making sure that we are not leaving our scope uh, to uh, going into like a clinical psych area. Mm. Um, can you give us some like clarity on uh, some tips of how we can work effectively and be trauma informed but without um, perhaps going into more of a psychology yeah. setting. Well, I guess that's like the... Or, yeah, going past our scope. Yeah, and that's always a really hard thing as well. And mm. I'm all for overlap, but not everyone is. Mm. Um, I guess a really important thing is to know that clinical psychs and psychologists, they do therapy. Mm. And I mean like talking therapy and that's what they, they predominantly do. And I know that exercise physiologists, they do movement therapy essentially mm. but there are a lot of overlaps you know assessment is really important and I know that EPs do amazing assessment um, both physical and you know psychosocial which is fantastic because that's somewhere that clean psychs could do better um, on the other hand uh, but I I'd guess I'd say we're, we're, we're maybe average at, at that um, I would be I would be interested to understand what that means to you like from a um, my perspective, I, I don't really know. Like, how should I assess someone mm. with um, whether it's a psychosocial injury or, or mm. um, like, how far down that rabbit hole do we go? Well, I guess that's that's really kind of important question. <laughs> um, and I guess when it comes to it comes to sort of the intensity of perhaps someone's presenting concern. So. If someone's got a really, you know, they're, they're really unwell, that will then require you to go all the way back, you know, all the way back to sort of childhood, um, you know, not in as depth as you probably think it, it, you need, but understanding, you know, are there, um, you know, adverse childhood events that happened to them, people were bullied or perhaps, you know, um, sexual assault or that, or um, domestic abuse. Also understanding people's... Um, 
education, uh, the way that they have, you know, have they, where have they worked, have they had success in their life, um, and also just understanding, you know, have people taken any medications or have they taken any drugs or alcohol, um, their relationships with people, because all those things can really contribute to trauma. And with stuff like DVA, understanding what someone's identity is as a, as a, um, as a veteran because yeah. that's a really big thing is transitioning from being a full-time veteran out is a massive mm. transition and especially in identity um, but really getting into that but also making it contained because you can you can assess forever and that's the that's the issue and it can be an ongoing process it's never going to be able to do it in all at once mm. and I like to sort of think of it as a sort of a story when you start with the, the stuff that you need and over time, as a person starts to trust you, you learn more and more, and you know, the impact that you have is greater and greater. Um, but you know, there's there's an infinite number of questions you could ask. But the main thing is, you know, what, you know, what's happened to you, and and how can you help? Mm. Yes, that's interesting because um, so so more so than a or less less of a structured say a questionnaire type assessment and more of just hearing the person's story mm. um, and leaving the space for them to talk about what they want to talk about mm. um, myself I feel a little hesitant to ask someone about their trauma background mm. as an EP because I don't know if it's my place or not mm. um, <clears throat> but then sometimes people would talk about it or they, after they start to trust you and they've spent some time with you, they might just bring it up. Yeah. Um, I want to. I want to say that that's a really important part because a major part of trauma informed care is that safety mm. and feeling safe. Like trauma informed care is one of the main main tenets, sort of feeling that you're in a safe space. Mm. And the fact that someone's opened up to you about that means that they're in a safe space. Mm. And. It sounds like here at Rebound, there's like it does create a safe space because, you know, even for psychologists and other um, mental health professionals, opening up about your trauma background can mm. be really confronting. Mm. It can take twenty sessions, mm. so it's it's really important that you know you create that safe space. And it mm. sounds like it comes out naturally. If you try to push it, sometimes it can be too much. Well, that's where I feel like sometimes. Um you, you're kind of walking well EPs could walk the line of what's our scope and what's not and it's like asking more I feel like is not really our place so much as just kind of listening to how much they want to tell us um, should we be doing anything with that information or just kind of going well thank you for telling me I'm glad you feel safe um, to talk about it yeah I guess that's a really good question I guess the more another kind of concept is sort of humanizing people and that can often like you know when you're um, experiencing sort of concern and, and, and trauma and sort of you seek help sometimes it can be really easy to feel like no one's really listening or you become a number mm. and when someone just listens to you and and sort of asks are you okay and you know provides continued care in a kind of reliable way that can be amazingly helpful because I guess perhaps let's say someone you know experiencing borderline personality disorder um, there's a lot of labor relationships people 
come and go. People um, really experience hard. It's really hard to sort of create meaningful relationships that you trust in people. But someone like an EP that they see every week, that is a, a relationship that they know what's going to happen. It's the same thing every week. And that sort of presents stability. Mm-hmm. And so that there's power in that. That's modeling those behaviors. And that's really powerful. And I guess when it comes to active sort of interventions, that exercise is really important. If people are experiencing sort of perhaps PTSD um, and they're withdrawing from people and they're not talking to anyone, coming out and doing exercise gets them out of the house. It's like their behavioral activation, it's exposure to sort of the world and perhaps to their fears, but everything you're, you're doing is sort of an active intervention, whether you know it or not. Mm. So it sounds like <clears throat> in this population, um, one of the most important things when it comes to art side of uh, treatment is more so just them building a routine and doing an activity consistently. Yeah. Having a positive behavior. Yep. Absolutely. In their life. And I guess also just, you know, being a, a positive support uh, and, you know, having that that positive regard for your you know clients as well that's so important and you know so absolutely that's why when I was reading through those kind of reports there was a lot of um, you know when people are doing that psychotherapy with people who may have experienced trauma it's quite confronting it, mm. you know you're saying you don't want to go into the mm. toe the line of someone else's position mm. and that's really wise because if you go into that then it can break relationships mm. if it's not done right but there is so much power in like reading those exercise physiology reports and seeing how people have improved mm. just from experiencing that, mm. you know, muscle uh, building and also just coming each week. Mm. There's this, there's it's a lot to it. Mm. I think that's something that um, Andrew, we've seen a lot, um, especially just exercise for mental health in general, mm. and. Uh, what the guidelines are and what we found is most important that it's not necessarily the, the specific physical um, changes in that person's body it's just exercise it's it's exercise with other people whether they've had a similar experience to them or not like like you said before Max it's just the environment that they're getting out of from their home and into into a community or uh, you know, a, a gym or whatever um, we we definitely I definitely saw that when working with particularly you know psychosocial mm. disabilities and injuries mm. um, how how does this translate into a like a work cover situation like when there's a I am an employee or I'm a um, I am employed by someone because where, where I first started my first job was in occupational rehab and mm-hmm. some of the work that we did there was in psychological injuries um, and what I found then that part of the biggest challenge in my role is managing the conflict between where the blame sit or, or whether there is blame mm. like I got injured at work mm. It's it's my boss's fault, or mm. it's the business's fault yeah. that I got injured. Yeah, which then places a 
an exercise physiologist or a rehab counsellor or an OT, sort of in this weird yeah. circle. Absolutely. And that is it's a bloody hard kind of process to do. And I guess when you're managing a, uh, you know, someone who you're trying to help who's been experienced something quite you know, terrific, um, terrifying more likely, um, that trying to then work with work cover and being able to sort of work with them, it's you sit somewhere in between trying to support the person and also manage those expectations of the you know, government. I guess that ultimately you sort of have to support the sort of the justice of the person. And I guess if that is, you know, supporting them to do what they feel is right is then that's the kind of way you'll have to do it. Um, but also that is another sort of um, point back to Archie, knowing the scope of your work. You know, you're not, you don't need to act as an advocate for a person, you know, in a potential, you know, court case or anything like that. It's about giving them that, that consistency, you know, making sure they feel validated in their concerns. You don't have to always agree with what people say. They say, you know, I was, I was, heard at work and it was the worst experience ever you don't need to turn around and be like oh yeah that workplace was horrible they're the worst mm. you can be like that sucks I'm so sorry mm-hmm. and every time you do that it's incredibly validating to that person mm. but you're also not agreeing with the person and saying that that workplace is the worst mm. and I think you can that that's like a skill that I mean I've learned and I've had to learn um, because there is a lot of managing opinions about places and what you can and can't do and can and can't say. So absolutely um, supporting the person to get what they need to get better, but also managing what you can do so, so you can actually help get, you know, without that work cover, you can't help them. So, so you can listen, validate and have empathy without taking sides. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's probably quite a good... Um, way to think about it for just work cover in general um, that you, you don't want to take sides yeah. uh, because people often come in and they want you to take a side, they want you to take their side yeah. because uh, they often feel like nobody's on my side yeah. you know, I've got the insurance company wants me to do this and my boss wants me to do this and the rehab consultant wants me to do this and GP wants me to do this nobody, nobody knows what I'm going through mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's almost well, as, as a healthcare professional where we, we like to help people and we like to care for people, it's really easy to get sucked into the idea of going, well, I'm on your side. Mm. It's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm supporting you. But yeah, and I guess... get caught. It's really important to also recognise that, you know, there are inherent issues with every system, in, including WorkCover or CIRA. Um, and I oh, guess, we know. <laughs> and I guess uh, that's sort of something that will change over time with advocacy from bodies like ESSA or you know the Australian Psychology Society and I think that that's the most sort of important way that you can make change as well because you know these things affect you and they affect the you know the, the consumers as well so I think that's one way of doing it but turning around and being like yeah that place sucks that that won't help anyone really do you have any um Back on something we were talking about before was when someone comes in uh, and they have a trauma-related injury Mm -hmm. um, in trying to make the space as safe 
and as positive for them as possible. Mm. Um, what tips can you give for us or and for, for EPs and physical side therapists in general to, yeah. to do that? Yeah, I think, I guess, I think it's a lot about stimulation. There, when you come in, there's, you know, let's say you go into a hospital. Sometimes it can be one of the worst places for someone who's got, you know, hypersensitivity to anything because there's a lot of beeping, there's a lot of people running around. You know, you, you want to have sort of the opposite to that. You want to have something that's sort of welcoming, warm, listening, it's like it listens, there's not too much sound. I guess taking into fact that these people are hypervigilant, they're avoidant, um, things can seem like danger. You want to make something seem the complete opposite. You want to make them feel like it's a warm place. Someone is, you know, welcoming a, per- welcoming a person in. Um, and I think that's really important. And, you know, it can, all it can do is, you know, if you, need, if you have someone who's met perhaps at the front desk and they're having a bad day and they make sort of like perhaps a snide comment, that could be sort of, that person will never come back ever again mm. and so those kind of things can be really really important those first couple of seconds that someone walks in um, I guess when it comes to the person who you're um, working with sort of giving them a bit of space to talk about what's going on for them mm. as you said before letting it happen naturally is sometimes important sometimes asking the questions being like you know um, what happened um, you know and also just being a little bit flexible I mean like you know you don't have to talk to me about this if you don't want to mm. um, but I'm here to listen um, giving that option mm. because if you don't give that option you can also feel like you're forcing it yeah and yeah um, what else I guess that consistency that you were saying being the same over and over and over again mm. predictability for people um, and being mindful of yourself when you're going in with that person like there is especially with complex trauma and perhaps things like um, borderline micro expressions can really can impact that stuff so if you maybe um, you know perhaps make a facial expression that looks like you're mm. you know scouring that's that will make people think that you're perhaps thinking poorly of them so it's really mm. being aware and making sure that you know if you were perhaps really affected by something perhaps you know you've just been in a car crash and you walked into a, an EP's office you want to make sure that if you walked in there you'd feel safe you know the thing you said about body language and facial expression is really really interesting and I think uh, we deal with that a lot especially when you're jumping from different populations and mm. different kind of sessions where you might uh, be working with a young kid who's really excitable you need to be really up really happy really emotive um, and really loud and then if you came into that next appointment and went hey how are you going mm. probably not an appropriate uh, yeah. you know body bit of body language to go into that session with if that's not what that person's used to seeing you as yeah exactly mm. Mm. no I think that and it's also just being you know mindful of what that person's trauma is and you know if it's um, and it's also making concessions like if a person has ex- um, experienced perhaps uh, you know, sexual assault then being mindful of who the, the potential exercise physiologist is mm. um, and also just being mindful of what other support people can give mm. um, and as you said being mindful of your scope and you're also your competencies people don't feel like they can do it get mm. more training or find someone else because there is always 
that room for what we call iatrogenic harm. So someone perhaps, you know, perhaps you guys are working with someone and this is just a hypothetical and you think that you're doing you know, really good work with them and perhaps something happens, it can actually make them worse. And that's mm. the risk with this, this sort of um, this population. Um, so that's really important to sort of know your limitations for sure. Because mm. number one is do no harm. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a good point as well. If you do feel out of your depth, that there is no pressure to, um, to, to take that client and mm. you can always have that open conversation. It's like, hey, I don't feel um, equipped mm-hmm. to, to help you with your situation. Absolutely. I'd love to refer you to someone who I think can. Mm. Could be a very good idea there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I think it's just also just being mindful of humanizing people, making them feel like you're caring. And that's just, that can really make people feel better. Cause like there's just so much harm that's happened to them making them feel safe is just mm. is way that someone can heal and that's really important they mm. so you think of when we talk about the, the body language thing say someone who's uh, has a history of sexual assault um, and uh, I've found this sometimes with, with students we've had come in who aren't super aware of their own body language mm. as to how they stand around people or how they act around clients um, and they sometimes adopt like their, their PT stance, like wide stance, crossed arms or on their hips, um, and like looking dead at someone while they're sitting on a bench or something. <laughs> it's like quite intimidating. Mm. And then, yeah, I have to have a conversation with them. It's like, just be aware of how that might look from the other side if they look up and see like a large person standing there. So yeah. trying to adopt positions in the gym or uh, in the consult room that are less intimidating. Um, whether that's mirroring their posture um, or matching them or just making sure you're on their level as well yep. like if they're lying on the ground don't stand over them it's <laughs> pretty pretty straightforward one but a lot of the time people don't really realise what they're doing because they're too focused on what the other person's doing also coming up behind people that can oh, be really really interesting yeah like that's that's a really big um, thing that people have to have there's a, a startle reflex that's mm. much larger in people with PTSD, for example. Mm. So if you come up some, beside someone and say, hey, that mm. could, you know, they'll jump out of their shoes because it's so startling. And so yeah. sort of being, you know, making sure that they see you. Mm. And I think that's, that's again, making that safety. So it's really um, mm. being mindful of those things. And it's, it's little things that you can change that make a person feel a lot more safe. Mm. Very, very interesting because so much of it is not actually verbal um, and you know so much of our job as EPs is not just the movement but it's all the talking and just chat yelling we have while we're while we're moving yeah um, and there's so much that can be done positively and negatively mm. in this population yeah um, I guess also another thing is being mindful of specific trauma so take for example um with first nations australia australians thinking of um sort of intergenerational trauma and the kind of impact of um everyday experience of racism that kind of stuff can be really um confronting as well for for um people who come and i think that that's something that being aware of and being aware of people's own privilege as well is really important same with perhaps uh people who have come who are asylum seekers being aware of 
what they've experienced as well mm. and that is can also just be make a world difference as well just that acknowledgement as well mm. it doesn't have to be you know a whole you know new kind of set of exercises that might be relevant it's it's actually just being mindful of it can have such an impact mm. the word privilege there um i know is something that andrew and lauren are actually thinking about recently as well they um were we going to do some kind of thing for our quarterly or something around privilege as well? Mm. Mm. Yeah, we are, just to understand, well, e exactly this, right, to understand that people, um, I mean, we, we are on the northern beaches. Um, we are, you know, by all measures, a fairly Anglo-Saxon and uh, high socioeconomic area. And uh, the challenge that we faced, I think particularly early on, was when we started to go into working with people with psychosocial disability, that it was hard to, particularly for new grads, hard to find a way to relate to them or to be able, without fear, to have a conversation and not feel like you're going to say the wrong thing or not feel like that you're going to break someone. Uh, but at the same time, you know, like we've said, understand where you're scope of practice and where your line sort of starts and stops um, and our portal is, is going to extend more into the uh, sort of the gender um, mm. and um, uh, diversity there again so that we can help better understand people to be able to relate to them so that we can help build these routines help because we know that that's so much of the benefit of exercise physiology is that routine. But um, so I suppose that that might be my question back to you, Max. Is like we we work with or we, we bring in you know lots of new grads who um, uh, perhaps have not been exposed to these sort of things before. What would be your advice to a new grad EP about you know? whether it's what CPD they could do, what could they be exposed to, any books you'd recommend about just becoming more aware that this exists? Yeah, it's a great question actually. Um, and it really kind of depends as well. Like if we're talking about psychosocial or mental health, I think thinking widely and reading widely about um, sort of different um, mental health concerns um, and even volunteering for potentially um, different uh, organizations like 180 which is on the northern beaches that I mean I think that northern beaches is growing with its understanding of mental health but also just going a bit broader a bit more to understanding things like schizophrenia um, post-traumatic stress disorder um, you know even just day-to-day -day, like what listening to a podcast or um, watching you know you can't ask that those kind of things are really good because the more you understand what's going on the more that you can bring it up and talk about it and people will relate to you and um, you may not have experienced it but at least you can try to understand it um, and I guess um, you know with new grads it's really important to sort of um, you know, just be yeah, open to experiencing new things, uh, and especially with privilege, just being aware of what who you are and and what other people experience is completely different to you, and you know that in every single different way, and just trying to understand what those differences are and being mindful of them, and sort of just 
being humble about it and you know, striking up a conversation on your similarities as well. And I think that's really a really important part and you can start the conversation there and it can be daunting, it really can. And you can also have you know, guilt related to privilege and that getting over that's really important because if you have that, then it's gonna stop you from doing anything. So I think get, knowledge is power in this sort of, in this kind of way and being able to talk with people and understand what they're going through. If, even if you can't fully, never fully experienced it, it's still important to understand it. Do you have any resources that we can direct people to um, for learning more about trauma-informed practice or just hearing more about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I can I can flick you guys some um, of our resources from Australasian Society for Traumatic Stress Studies and also Phoenix, which is the um, sort of uh, a large body devoted to um, PTSD and all kinds of trauma. Um, they've got a lot of really good guidelines around that. Um, and I'm happy to just send over some other kind of resources. Uh, there's books you can read, like The Body Holds the, the, um, the Body Holds Score um, by Bessel van der Kolk. And there's a, there's a bunch of other stuff. Um, but just understanding what, it, what trauma is and how it happens and, and being like, understanding that it can happen in the minutest of little ways like bullying can change a person's you know can essentially contribute to someone developing schizophrenia mm. and just being like aware <coughs> of that and not downplaying it mm. yeah cool well, that's probably a good place to uh, leave the conversation uh, Max how's it been? it was great I liked it Andrew? yeah it was good <laughs> it was actually good it was good I didn't think I was going to enjoy it with the first sniff. Um, I thought it was going to be too, like too soury or too something. But actually, don't mind the combination of wine and beer. I don't think it's affordable though. That was. Don't think it's affordable. That was twenty six dollars. What three? Okay, twenty six dollars for three. Well, how many? How much is in there? Three point six, standard drinks. Okay, how many milliliters? Liters. Seven fifty. Seven fifty. It's like a medium range bottle of wine. But mm. it's half as much alcohol. Oh, true. Well, it depends why you're drinking. Exactly. <laughs> if you're drinking to get drunk, no, don't get this. It's not your, not good bang for your buck. And that was also the cheapest one. <laughs> That's the cheapest one? <laughs> Far out. Oof. Well, we might have it again. Actually, I don't think we will have it again. <laughs> we'll probably go back to individual cans next time. Yeah. That was good. Max, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Um, we will be back. At some point, in the future. Goodbye. Bye. See ya.